The scripture readings this week are from Luke 2, 41 through 52, and Mark 10, 13 through 16. Each year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to their custom. After the festival was over, they were returning home, but the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. Supposing that he was among their band of travelers, they journeyed on for a full day while looking for him among their family and friends. When they didn't find Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and putting questions to them. Everyone who heard him was amazed by his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were shocked. His mother said, "'Child, why have you treated us like this?' Listen, your father and I have been worried. We've been looking for you. Jesus replied, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he said to them. Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother cherished every word in her heart. Jesus matured in wisdom and years and in favor with God and with people. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We're starting a new sermon series, and it's one I'm pretty excited about. We're calling it Sacred Rhythms, and we're talking about how over the course of a life, we go through these rhythms and patterns, but that also when we kind of zoom in on our lives, we see smaller iterations of that. And that when we can really lean into these cycles of development and journeys of adventure and spiritual openness, that we can participate more fully with God in becoming who God has created us to be, discovering our true, se true selves in concert with the Holy Spirit who leads us on these paths, this cyclical, cyclical invitation into new life. Now, when we think about the self, a lot of times we think of ourselves as static, and sure, we change over time, but it's, it's pretty linear. There have been a lot of personality studies done uh, trying to discover how the personality is formed and what constitutes the self. A couple years ago, the longest personality study ever was published. It began in the year 1950 with a survey of over 1,014-year-olds in Scotland. They were rated by themselves and others on six personality traits to give an overall picture of what they called dependability. More than 60 years later, a few hundred of them agreed to be surveyed again at age 77. Now, the researchers hypoth hypothesized that they would see relative stability in those personality traits because shorter studies had shown consistency in personality over time. And when the results came back, the researchers were shocked. They wrote, correlations suggested no significant stability 
of any of the six characteristics or their underlying factor, dependability, over the 63-year interval. Kids who were impulsive were just as likely to be that way or not as older adults. Kids who were dependable might end up that way as adults or the total opposite. Despite the earlier studies showing that stability over short periods of time, it seems like over a longer period, personality stability just sort of breaks down, becomes disrupted. They concluded the longer the interval between two assessments of personality, the weaker the relationship between the two tends to be. Our results suggest that when the interval is increased to as much as 63 years, there is hardly any relationship at all. When we take this really broad view of life and personality over time, we see that we are meant to change. And we all have fantasies of the self, that we are this immovable thing in the midst of a changing world. But it turns out we're changing along with it all the time, even if it's so slow as to be really difficult to notice, even over the course of years. Now, some of you might be like, um, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I know a lot of people in the Zhao community are here in part because they've gone through significant life changes. I want to hear from you in comments. How different are you today than you were five years ago? How about 10 or 15? <clears throat> when I was 15 years old, I described myself as a misanthrope quite regularly. Now, I'm happy to admit that I love people and I will fall deeply into people's stories and one of the best parts of my job is hearing about who someone is and where they came from. And I'll come home from those meetings and be like, Cameron, oh my gosh, I just met the greatest human being ever alive. Every time. So I have changed in that way. Now I'm still, surprisingly to most people, definitely an introvert. But that part of my personality has really shifted. But what about spiritually and religiously? A lot of you have gone through spiritual and religious transformations over time, and I have too. For instance, when I was a teenager, I was an agnostic philosophy major, and I was super depressed by the idea that I couldn't believe in God no matter how hard I tried. But now I am a professional religious leader, and God, though still a mystery in many ways, is a constant presence in my life that I feel quite connected to even in the midst of all sorts of doubt and confusion. Now there have been theories over the years about how and why and in what order human beings change and become who they are. One of the most prominent was offered by Eric Erickson. We'll just call him Eric Jr. And he offered the sta stages of human psychosocial development. Now, across the lifespan, Eric Jr. identified major stages that we go through that define and change our sense of self, self and relationship to others. So he suggested that each of these stages brings gifts and challenges and questions, opportunities to basically move towards social integration and fullness or away. Childhood, for instance, across a lot of different stages, actually, invites us to explore our capacities and vulnerabilities. We ask questions like, you know, who can I trust? 
Can I trust myself? Can I independently engage with the world or not? In adolescence and early adulthood, we have questions of identity and of love. Can I love and be loved? Am I drawn towards intimacy or do I choose against life and towards isolation? Middle age challenges us to examine our legacy and our impact. Am I here just for me or am I actually here for the world around me? And older adulthood offers an opportunity to reflect on the life that we've lived, to accept it or not, to despair about uh, the end of our life, or to embrace the lessons we've learned and revel in them with joy. Now, the idea that we ultimately might be unrecognizable to ourselves at the end of our lives versus the beginning might be a little strange and even scary. But what if that's how God intended it? That, that we are supposed to move through these different stages and cycles, discovering ourselves every step of the way, even in ways that would have felt entirely unpredictable earlier in the journey. What if that's how God created us? If God created us with that purpose, to change and grow in ways that really are unimaginable at, at the beginning of the journey, that we have to kind of walk the path to, to discover it, and that looking back, we go, wow, I never thought I could have ended up here. Then we have an opportunity to thoughtfully participate in our own transformation so that we don't drift randomly, that we don't happen to choose for or against the ways of life and connection and love, but that we intentionally work with God, work with the Spirit to become more and more who we are made to be who we were put on this earth to be. One of the theological ideas for this is called sanctification. It literally means to be made holy. And it's the idea that God, especially through the Spirit, helps us to become more and more our holiest selves. Now that doesn't mean that we'll like become more pious or more performative in our religious selves, but that over time, through the work of the Spirit and the participation of our own willingness to be transformed, we can become closer to God, closer to who we were intended to be, the holiest and truest versions of ourselves. Now, there are some spiritual traditions that really reject the self and think about this as, as being far from the self, that you've got to become something other than what you naturally are in order to become holy. A lot of the Christian tradition thinks of it in this way, and they kind of lean on Paul, who talks a lot about dying to yourself. But there are a lot of ways of framing that and understanding the scriptures that are a lot gentler and kinder to the self. Because after all, Paul says that we die to ourselves so that we can find our truer self in Christ. So for instance, if we lean into Buddhist wisdom and framing, then we can understand that Paul's dying to the self is dying to the false self, dying to the ego, to discover what is truly there, what was hidden from us by our idols and images that got in the way. Similarly, in our own little corner of Christendom, uh, we come, we Zhao, come from the tradition of Wesleyan theology. 
This guy, John Wesley, had a lot of good takes, and a bunch of people got on board. And that's sort of the, <laughs> the beginning of our denomination that we're affiliated with. And it's one of the reasons that I stick around with our denomination, even though it's kind of a problem a lot of the time. Because Wesleyan theology really embraces the goodness of the self, saying, you know, God created us, said very good, God wasn't wrong. So there must be something there that is worth not just denying, but actually embracing. <coughs> Wesley gives us this helpful image for sanctification or becoming holy. He leans on the scriptural idea of seeing in a mirror dimly. It's like seeing in a mirror dimly, and yet someday we will see fully and clearly. But he says now, living in the world um, full of destruction and sin and brokenness and oppression, it's like we're trying to look at ourselves in a really dirty mirror. That we only see an approximation through layers of grime and dirt and muck. We see little glimpses of our true selves, but it's actually really obscured by all this other stuff that's in the way. And he says that the Holy Spirit works on us, works on that mirror to uncover the dirt and the grime, to wipe away layers of gunk, to reveal our truest selves. And that becoming holy is about uncovering the truest self that is always there, that is only obscured by these falsehoods of the world and the struggle, the hurt, the trauma of being alive in a broken place. So without all of that sediment obscuring our vision of ourselves, what would we look like? How does God see us? What is our truest self? This is part of the, of the adventure of going through the process of becoming holy, of being in these rhythms of self-discovery and journey? Are we going to wipe away some of that muck? Or are we going to add another layer of grime? Now, we can be excited, I think, as a people, about saying, yeah, I want to find my truest self. I want to uncover from all of that muck and figure out who I really am. But one thing we have to remember when we think about this is that that path towards self-discovery, towards sanctification, towards being more fully alive with God, it's probably not linear. Now, when we're trying to learn about ourselves, we uh, look to the story of God's people and the scriptures and to the patterns of creation. We look to the person of Jesus. These are our practices at Zao. And in the scriptures and the ecosystems of creation, we see cycles moving from life to death to life again. And there isn't a linear path unless you kind of cut out a section and pretend that nothing else exists. Our capitalist, anthropocentric, industrialized view of the world distorts us. And it makes us think of life like an assembly line with a beginning and an end, a linear system of automation where we start at one point and we end fully finished at the other. No detours, no turnarounds, and nothing after the end. But we know from following Jesus to the cross that 
the cross itself leads to resurrection, and that there's really no way to the resurrection except through death on the cross. That's where we see that dying to the false self brings us a truer self, a more alive self. We know from the earth that new life springs forth from death over and over again. This is the beauty of, of composting and saying, hey, actually, the end of one life cycle is fully necessary for the beginning of another. And that death is <laughs> never an end, but is actually the next beginning. And so rather than resist death, we are actually called to enter into cycles of birth, life, death, and rebirth. So examining these patterns and leaning into them can bring us into a new awareness about who we are and how we're called to grow. But it can be intimidating. Now a lot of thinkers have examined the stories that we tell ourselves and one another to make meaning in the world. Carl Jung, for instance, identified a lot of archetypes that seem to appear in our stories. Building on his work, Joseph Campbell saw a lot of story arcs and started to identify these cycles of action and reflection, saying that every good myth has some same similar patterns. From there, uh, a, a contemporary sitcom writer named Dan Harmon distilled Campbell's work into a writing tool he calls the story circle. Can we put that up? All right, so the story circle, as Dan Harmon has interpreted it, it starts with the hero or protagonist beginning in a place of comfort. They experience a need or desire, which is also a call to adventure, and that brings them into an unfamiliar situation to which they must adapt. But they pay a price. Then they return to their familiar situation, having been changed by their journey. And Harmon asserts that this is true of basically every story. I saw one blogger <laughs> following Dan Harmon's story circle to map out the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I won't recreate it for you here, but it works. It fits. But even though we can apply it to these long, lifelong narratives, Harmon also says that you can zoom in and apply it to any point in the story that you can apply it to starting on the couch, a place of comfort, wanting a sandwich, call to adventure, getting your food and returning full. Basically, this cycle is something that you can zoom out to see over the course of a lifetime or of generations or of all creation, or zoom in to see any given moment. And these cycles happen over and over again as we are on various journeys of self-discovery and change. And that's where the story ends each time, with a changed self. But that self then experiences a new need, a new call to adventure, and the cycle begins again. In life, in spiritual processes, we see these patterns emerge over and over again. And in our spiritual attempts to remove the grime that obscures the self, Entering into these cycles knowingly and openly actually offers us our best shot at coming out changed with less grime instead of more at the end of any given cycle. Becoming holy by emerging as our truest selves. That in each of these cycles is 
an invitation to grow, to be changed by God. And we can say yes, or we can resist it in ways that ultimately end up heaping more grime on that mirror. So how can we harness these mini cycles to clean off some grit and discover ourselves more completely? Even if it is just one speck of mirror at a time. So let's start at the very beginning. I've heard it's a very good place to start. In order to fully dive in here, I want you to think about a recent spiritual beginning. Now, this is sometimes easiest to see when we can remember part two of the cycle, that need or desire we had. What was a recent time that you realized spiritually something wasn't working for you? Was there a call to adventure that you felt? You might think about what brought you to a church like Zhao, or if you recently started a practice around meditation or journaling or spending more time outside. Perhaps you're on a journey of opening yourself to the idea that you are loved and lovable. Imagine that beginning. Recall that beginning as we apply some of these ideas and bring more awareness to it. So Harmon says <coughs> that the beginning of any of these cycles is about starting in a place of comfort, having a desire or need, and following that desire into an unknown situation. Basically, saying yes to the call to adventure. Now we're going to compare that to Eric Jr.'s psychosocial st stages of childhood. Can we put that up? All right. So over the first few years of life, and again, Erickson has really zoomed out to see the whole lifespan, but we want to apply it and say we can experience like a childhood or a new beginning at any stage of life. In these first couple of years of life, the crises that we go through, trust versus mistrust, autonomy versus doubt, and initiative versus guilt. Basically, we're trying to figure out if the environment we're in or entering into is trustworthy. We're looking ahead to the journey and saying, can I even do this? And we're trying to figure out who can I trust? And most of all, can I trust myself to take action? Am I really capable of going on this journey? Now, it can break down at any point in this part of the, of the cycle. We can become overly suspicious and afraid of the future and stagnate. We can experience feelings of shame and self-doubt that undermine us at every turn. We can feel a sense of guilt, he says, inadequacy to be on one's own. Or we can build faith in the environment and in future events. We can discover a sense of self-control and adequacy. We are capable of doing this. We can generate the ability to initiate in the world, self-start, and take an active role in this adventure that's to come. So at the beginning of these spiritual cycles, we are asking ourselves fundamentally, can I risk it? Is the journey too terrifying? Am I even strong enough? Can I count on the people around me to support me through this? 
And we wonder if we're actually capable of fulfilling that adventure to which we have been called. Now, this first part of the journey is the most doubt-ridden, probably because it still feels like we could say no, we could turn back. But we do know from the cycles of the earth that the only way through a cycle is through it. And if we resist it, it's like going to the landfill instead of the compost. We can stagnate, we can resist, we can hold off. And what that does is add more and more grime. And a lot of times, that feeling of like, can't I just stay here? Can't I just, why would I, this feels terrible. It's because we begin in that place of comfort, and that place of comfort is so comfortable, even though it's starting to hurt. And that's that need or desire, the way that it rubs against what we know. We are being called to adventure, called to a new way of being, called to a new spiritual cycle. And we have an opportunity to say yes, but that fear and that doubt, ooh, that can cause us to stagnate and say, no, please, no. So how do we find the hope and trust in ourselves and in the world and hopefully in God to move through the cycle and not get stuck? This is where I'd invite you to turn to the scriptures, turn to Jesus. As we read today, we have this story of Jesus at the beginning of his life as a child he and his parents had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And as a 12-year-old, he kind of conveniently lost track of his family in the pack of travelers. Now, this wasn't so un uh, unusual. People would travel as whole communities. And so I'm sure everyone was saying, well, somebody knows where Jesus is. But actually, he didn't travel with them at all. He had stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents just didn't know. So they journeyed for a full day, <laughs> and they were like, ah, Jesus is somewhere here, right? Anybody seen Jesus? Jesus is probably somewhere. And then they were like, oh no, Jesus is nowhere. And so they returned to Jerusalem looking for him, I'm sure at this point, furious and terrified. But when they found him, after three days, he was at the temple chatting. He was at the temple theologizing. He was at the temple fully immersed in his call to adventure. He knew where he was invited to go. And so he broke from every norm. <laughs> he terrified his parents. He went full force into it and was like, I, this is where I'm called to be. When his parents questioned him about, him about it, he was like, why did you not think I would be here? I am the son of God after all. Now, Scripture is careful to note <coughs> that afterward, uh, he was much more obedient to them. Uh, maybe he had learned a little bit how to be more conscientious of his parents who loved him. But we still see this picture of a 12-year-old saying yes to the call to adventure, fully trusting in who he was, who God had made him to be, and throwing away all these conventions and norms and expectations to dive in to that adventure. 
Those first years of Jesus in the temple helped form him into the leader God had called him to be, to be a teacher then and now. Now, in Jesus, in childhood, we see this example of putting trust entirely into God as a heavenly parent who wants good things for us. Jesus trusted in the call and chose to pursue it with abandon. And we can learn from that childish boldness. You see, Jesus, once he was grown up, sort of calls back to this. Now, I don't know if he's calling back to his own childhood or not, but that second scripture that we read about the people bringing children to Jesus and Jesus really teaching through their lens, it demonstrates how Jesus understands that childhood, though it is this time of doubt and discovery, actually brings some real strengths and advantages. When the adults were like, oh, no, no, the children, get the children away from him. Jesus is doing important things. Jesus' response was to say, no, no, no. Allow the children to come to me. They, you know what? They get this better than you do, honestly. And uh, I assure you, he says, I love that phrase, I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. Jesus understood that at the beginning of that cycle, along with the fear and doubt, there is a potential for openness. There is a childlike wonder, a longing to trust. Who loves an adventure more than a child? Jesus is inviting us to approach every new call to adventure with that childlike wonder and to meet our own doubts, our own fears about our capabilities with that childlike openness that says, but what if I could trust? What if God is on my side? What if my heavenly parent is looking out for me? What if this adventure is everything I hope it could be? This is the key, Jesus says, to entering the kingdom of God. Saying yes to the call to adventure. Saying yes to a new cycle. Saying yes, I will go into the unknown and we will find out what happens. And I know that I will return changed. This is the call of the beginning of the spiritual rhythms of development. To feel that need, that desire, that longing, and to follow it into the unknown with the hope of a trusting child. A trusting child who knows their heavenly parent is on their side. So how do we begin to wipe away the grime from whatever part of the mirror we've zoomed in on? How do we discover a new, holier part of ourselves, uncovering what was there all along that has been hidden from us? We say yes. We say let's go. We say this hurts and I won't dwell here any longer. I will not allow myself to stagnate. I will follow the call of the gospel into adventure. I will find that next step. I will try going to church in person. I will try to talk to a new friend. I will crack that book that I've been side-eyeing for a long time. I might even pray. Say yes to the call to adventure. This is how we begin with the earnestness of a child 
to enter the kingdom of God and be changed by it over and over and over again. I would love to hear from you all the adventures that God is calling you to in your spiritual self-discovery and the risks that you're willing to take with the openness of a trusting child. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, may you remind us who you are and who we are. God, you modeled for us what it means to follow you to your home, to sit at the temple, to abandon what we know, and to be transformed. God, may we be like children at the beginning of life's journey. May we cycle through our spiritual path which, with openness and hope. May you instill in us a trust for you, for ourselves, and for one another, that the path itself is good, and that we can emerge capable, we can emerge changed, we can emerge more ourselves than ever before, holy in your image. In your name we pray. Amen.